So I manage these funds, uh, you know, gold, silver, Bitcoin related, all designed to protect investors from what I feel is a high probability certainty. And that is that our governments are out of control and that they are systematically set up to print and debase the currency and that inflation has been a problem of late. And it's, sadly, it's going to become a bigger problem over time. And therefore, because of that, you know, because of the mathematics around that, people who are investing and trying to save for the future really need to understand this issue and need to understand the kind of investments they can select that will protect them from that inflation. Welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Our guest this week is one of my favorite Bitcoin minds, Lawrence Lepard. Lawrence is a career investment manager who has throughout his career, transitioned towards a focus on sound money and is unique in the Bitcoin community uh, in that he first was kind of a gold bug and prior to discovering Bitcoin. And so he's one of the best people I think you can find to listen for an educated and balanced opinion in comparing gold and Bitcoin. So we're, we're going to talk a little bit about the comparison and uh, the pros and cons of, of gold and Bitcoin as, as they relate to each other and take that in the context of, of Larry's opinions about what's happening in the market and in the global financial system in general. So Larry has a, has a lot of valuable perspectives to offer in terms of understanding what is going on, skyrocketing government debt, and what it means for the likelihood of inflation persisting forward and just being a condition that investors, just regular people who are trying to survive, need to understand and prepare for. So uh, that's kind of where we're gonna go with this next hour. I hope you enjoy Larry as much as I do. Thank you for tuning in and here we go. All right, welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Today, our guest is Lawrence Lepard. Larry is a lifetime investor, a manager of a number of different investment funds, investment uh, personality, and uh, and much more. Welcome, Larry. Hey, very nice to be with you, Scott. And thanks for having me on your show. Thank you again for coming on. For our listeners who are new to Bitcoin or maybe new to you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we... Uh... Yeah, sure. I'll try, I'll try and keep it brief. So... I've spent my entire career as an investment manager, you know, primarily actually before 2008, I was a venture capitalist uh, investing in high tech things, you know, all the way back to 81 when I started in the business, you know, floppy disk drives and so forth. And then kind of the last run I had was all the dot com stuff in the internet growth area of 93 to 2000, the early 2000s. And I kind of retired in the early 2000s, 2003, four area, and was just uh, managing my own investments. And um, then 2008 happened, the, the great financial crisis. And uh, I kind of got radicalized for sound money. When I saw them bail out the banks, I saw the QE, I saw the amount of money they printed, I saw the zero interest rate policy, a light bulb went off my head. I said, oh my God, I get, I know what this means. This means that I haven't saved enough money because they're going to paste this stuff. And so I, I did a deep dive at the time into uh, gold and silver and gold and silver mining companies because I was looking for investing to invest in an area that had a macro tailwind, which, which is to say something that would benefit from the inflation that I was pretty certain all that money printing was going to lead to. And I was right. It did lead to inflation. It came in funny ways. It came inflation financial assets. Now it's more inflation everywhere. But uh, at the time, it started off in just inflation in stocks and so forth. And um, so I've, I've been managing this fund uh, since that time. And uh, as, as time has gone by, I was aware in the early days of Bitcoin, I wasn't able to really buy it because I didn't, well, I didn't figure out the whole paper wallet and so on and so forth issue in 09 and 11. And I wasn't mining it or any of that kind of stuff. But when Coinbase came public and you could actually uh, buy it, I almost got trapped in Fort Gox. Um, is it Fort Gox or uh, Mount Gox? Mount Gox. Yeah, I had all the forms. So I was about to send them money and they failed. I was very lucky, kind of dodged a bullet. God was looking out for me. And then 
Coinbase came along and they 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 were selling it. Okay, I should buy some of this. I started studying it, and, and as as time has gone by, my views have evolved such that you know I always thought gold and silver were just the best forms of sound money, and that would be all I would need. And I've now added Bitcoin to that arsenal. And as I think we've discussed offline, in many ways, Bitcoin is even better, in some ways worse. But um, and we can talk about that. But so I so I manage these funds, uh, you know, gold, silvers, Bitcoin related all designed to protect investors from what I feel is a high probability certainty. And that is that our governments are out of control and that they are systematically set up to print and debase the currency and that inflation has been a problem of late. And as sadly, it's going to become a bigger problem over time. And therefore, because of that, you know, because of the mathematics around that, People who are investing and trying to save for the future really need to understand this issue and need to understand the kind of investments they can select that will protect them from that inflation. So that's that's kind of my background. Yeah, you mentioned 2008, and I, I wonder sometimes if the fact that things didn't really blow up at that point has sort of given a lot of people this feeling that the party can go on forever because it, di it didn't pop in 2008. And, and actually, after kind of a short dip, there was really a, a run then again of asset appreciation. We know now it's inflation, but the nominal price of for asset holders, it was a great run after. Yeah, no, that's right. Well, the, the Federal Reserve is kind of a serial bubble blower. I mean, you know, when LTCM blew up in 1998, they, they blew the dot-com bubble in 2000. And then, you know, that burst and then Supernaki turned and cut rates down to 1% and they blew the U.S. housing bubble and uh, Wall Street got all levered up on housing. And of course, the house, price of houses could never go down and never gone down, they said, but they forgot to study back to the 30s when it went down quite a bit. They went down quite a bit. And then that bubble burst. And, and now we're in what I call the everything bubble, which is to say, you know, the sovereign currencies at risk because by taking, you know, the ZERP interest rates that they enacted in 2008, they, they held that at that level. I mean, it would have been one thing if they did it shortly. I mean, I get it. You know, things were falling apart. So we have to take these emergency measures to make sure the ATMs still work. I, I get that. But, you know, I would have imagined that would have lasted a year and then, okay, things are back to normal. We'll, we'll put everything back to normal. No, they actually held interest rates low from 08 all the way up into 15, 16. And they started to increase them and then they had to pivot and drop them again. And then COVID came and they dropped them again. And as we know, they, they increased their balance sheet throughout the entire time frame, more or less. There was a, a brief period of runoff. And so, you know, it, it's... Um, it's just been, it, you know, and, and this is the way, this is the math. You know, if you go to my Twitter feed, my pinned tweet shows you that, you know, when you, where you're in a debt-based system, when you've got monetary, a monetary system that's based on debt is used to create money and debt is used to grow the system, it's like a shark. You got to keep swimming or you're going to die. Got to have more and more money constantly entering the system. And that more and more money, by definition, is really inflation. And so if you're, you know, the average working person or the average retiree or, or really anybody and you're trying to save, you're always trying to save in, in terms that can beat that inflation. And it's very hard and it's very unfair because it makes it hard to retire. It makes it hard because the people at the bottom are the last ones to get the pay raises. And it's, it very much advantages the people at the top because they can borrow very cheaply and use that cheap money to buy productive assets. And so that's a that's an enormous unfair unfairness, and that's what's led to a lot of the injustice. And I think a lot of the strife in the world right now is the fact that you know the world is being run by by people who have set up the, they've rigged the system in their own favor. I think that people also are at a little bit of an unfair disadvantage because of sort of the, the disingenuous way that the media tends to describe inflation. You know, we we hear about inflation targets or inflation coming down. It like it gives the average listener the the impression that things are think you know the price of eggs or gasoline or whatever is is going to return to yeah, the ex-ante condition. Yeah, for sure. I mean, 
Look, I mean, you know, inflation never really, I mean, never goes negative, very rarely goes negative. But to be fair, the, you know, it is waves. I mean, you know, gasoline here was six or seven dollars, you know, I don't know, at the peak after after the COVID inflation. And now it's back down to four and a half, five. I mean, but I'm quite sure on the next run up, it'll go to eight or nine. And, you know, I, I mean, we, you know, look, when I when I was a kid in high school, gasoline was 25 cents a gallon. You know, when I was in college, gas was a dollar a gallon, you know, and, and so it's, it's kind of a relentless you know, March, nom- March in nominal terms, high, higher. And that's that's not really, I mean, like, it's the same gallon of gas I put in my car today as I did 30 years ago. Uh, the difference is that there's just a lot more currency units being used to chase it. And so the price per Per gallon is just a lot higher, and and that's that's what we're all fighting against. That's the that's the flaw in the Keynesian system. I mean, the Keynesian system is you know Keynes was all about growth, and in reality, and as most Bitcoiners know, and, and a lot of sound money people know and understand, you know, the healthiest economy isn't really about a growing economy; it's about an efficient economy. You want you know getting more for less is what's good, and that's based on productivity, and that's based on sound money, and that's based on setting prices correctly. Uh, and sadly. You know, there are it's one in a hundred or, you know, very few of the of the almost none of the politicians and one in a hundred of just average people who understand that, you know. And so we, you know, we we get we get led into all these fights over stuff that doesn't even matter because the money's not sound. That's the that's the core problem. Yeah. So what, when the money is this unsound, it sort of it makes it impossible for the market to figure out what the price of anything should be. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's almost it's almost like funny money. You know, it's it's extremely hard. And and if you can see, I mean, there are a lot of charts that show this in visual form. I mean, you know, I can't imagine. I mean, if, if, if you go back and you look at a lumber chart as an example over the past 10 years, I mean, it's like it looks like a, a heart attack. It's, I mean, it, it just, you know, I mean, um, and so imagine being somebody growing and producing lumber or imagine being somebody building houses and using lumber as an input. And, you know, your input cost can go up 400 percent and then it can fall 70 percent and it just zigzags back and forth. I mean, when you've got mispricing of things in economies, it's, it's extremely difficult to plan and and produce good outcomes because you just you, you don't know what to expect. And, and the reason that those kind of zigzags occur is the broken monetary system. Another thing I think is a, a topic worth touching on that I, that isn't super well understood is most people are aware or they were alive and remember that interest rates were higher and went even higher, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So that there's this idea that it'll be fine again, because that has already happened once before. But structurally, the conditions of the the market today are just not analogous at all to what was going on at that time. That's a great, great point. Yeah. I mean, and and that's, you know, the people who say we don't have real problems here. And even this, you know, as high up as Jay Powell, who's the Fed chairman, you know, says, well, we'll just do what Paul Volcker said, you know, did. Well, you know, we get it. Um, you know, okay, maybe the money supply did grow too quickly, but we'll rein it all in with high interest rates. We'll create a very positive real interest rate. And, you know, the money will become sound again and we'll have, you know, 40 years of deflation like we did from 1980 to 2020. The problem with that line of thinking is that when Volcker did what he did in 1980, and he took interest rates at 20% and almost bankrupted my dad's business because he had a big inventory he carried as a retailer. When he did that, you know, the federal government debt was 25, 20, 25% of GDP. And right now the federal government does 130% of GDP. And so we can't realistically take interest rates where we need to take them to return soundness to the money without blowing up the fiscal deficit in the United States, i.e., you know, and, and you can see this if you just go to Google and put in, you know, 
uh, chart of U.S. federal government interest expense, you'll see what kind of looks like a parabola pointed towards the sky. And so, you know, by by trying to solve the problem that they last time solved with higher interest rates, with higher interest rates this time, well, the problem is that they, you know, after 40 years of debt-fueled growth, we've now got too much debt to do that. And so what's, what it's drawn us into is we're in a sovereign debt crisis where, as I said earlier, the issue this time is we're at the everything bubble level and either the debt's going to be made good or the currency is going to be worthless. And it's, it's a choice. It, you know, for the debt to be made good, we could push it all up, but everyone would go bankrupt and interest rates would be extremely high. Or we can decide that we're going to keep interest rates low and keep printing money to keep the system going, but inflation is going to run wild. And so the Federal Reserve and the other monetary authorities are really kind of painted into a corner um, and that they can't get out of. And, and that's what you know, informs my view of why you've got to have sound money right here, right now. And and this is, um, you know, it's been seen in a lot of different financial metrics. And what's difficult for most people to understand is they tend to, the average person, the average investor tends to look at any given event or any situation and say, well, what happened yesterday? What happened the year before? What happened the year before that? And we've had 40 years of deflation. We've had 40 years of low inflation. We haven't run into one of these things in a long time. To see something like this, you have to go back and you have to look at the 1970s, or you have to look at the sovereign debt crises of the 1910s, 20s, and 30s when you know Britain came off the gold standard. And um, what you see in those cases is, you know, almost universally, when the debt to GDP gets as high as it is right now, you're either going to have a complete collapse and default on the debt, uh, unlikely though, because we can print it. Or you're going to print and have massive inflation and reset everything to a much higher nominal level so that the debt becomes a smaller percentage of GDP. It's kind of confusing, but it's but it's pretty, if you take the time to study it, pretty certainly true. You know, what it suggests is that we're kind of at the end game or very close to the end game of this long experiment with debt-fueled growth. That, that's, kind of, that's kind of where I see us right now. And if politicians are given the choice of the two, sort of the, the more the, the easier political path is to debase the currency and keep the appearances of everything rolling along as long as possible, because pivoting to a austerity policy would be so painful for people and cutting social programs and everything else. I think that's right. I mean, it's not impossible. Anything is possible in this world. You know, they could they could drive us into a 1930s style collapse. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, the, the average politician faced with instant death based on collapse or a lot of complaining and slower death based on inflation, they'll choose inflation all day long. You know, it's it's the can kicking mentality of the political class, right? So you see these headlines asking the question, the rhetorical question of, you know, will we be able to stick the soft landing? And and it's like <laughs> yeah. the, the plane doesn't even have any wheels. Oh no, the plane the plane isn't the plane's a, it's a mess. Yeah, I mean the controls are sloppy. The plane is a fugoid. We're going up, we're going down. We don't know what we're doing. I mean. Look, we, you know, they grew the money supply 42% in the COVID era. You know, the, the inflation that they said didn't exist. And then they said it was transitory, went from zero or 1% to 9% within months. You know, and now it's crashed from 9% back down to three. Um, and, and they're getting, in my view, they're getting ready to declare victory. They're getting ready to say, oh, yeah, look, we solved it. You know, that's what the U.S. stock market rally today um, was all about. But I, I don't think they have solved it. I think that there's a fundamental underlying inflation issue. I mean, to me, the biggest event that really occurred in the last few years is that the March 2020 uh, COVID event and the response to that, I think, kicked us out of a long-term deflationary trend. And while there are many technologies that are deflationary, and while I agree with Jeff Booth that we live in a deflationary technical world, um, I think it, for brief periods of time, when the system is is quaking in its boots, as it is right now, there will be inflation. There has to be inflation because the alternative is collapse. 
And so to me, it's only a matter of time, you know, until the Fed has to resume the path that they were on in the COVID area, which is to say reversing QT, growing their balance sheet, dropping interest rates and trying to stimulate the economy. And we've already seen signs of this. I mean, they've now kind of said it's now pretty obvious that they've stopped raising rates. Um, and so, you know, we, they're signaling that they're close to, to being there because, and, and they've also done a lot of signaling that, hey, you know, we've licked this inflation problem. They had Paul Krugman came out and say, hey, we've solved it. You know, and then you've got other economists say, hey, you know, maybe 3% is as good as two, you know, so we're getting close. So you can see, you know, the politicians tend to respond to whatever the, the loudest noise is. And obviously a year or two ago, inflation was the loudest noise and they made a lot and they had to respond and you know, wait until we start to have layoffs, wait until, you know, uh, other bad things start to happen in the economy, the banking system starts to break, you know, everyone starts to realize the stock market starts to come unglued and everyone's earning or savings and retirement starts to go down a lot in value. You know, they'll, they'll be terrified of the outcome if they don't. Yeah. One, one of my favorite phrases is QE is welfare for the asset rich. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, it's terribly sad. I mean, what, what happened in 2008, in my opinion, was just an enormous crime. I mean, just just enormous. I mean, it's, you know, it was rugged capitalism for all the poor homeowners. It was a great, I had it on my Twitter feed at one point in time. There was a great house photo, a photo of a house in, uh, I think it was in like Western US, maybe Las Vegas area. And it was spray painted on the door, said three tours in Iraq, in Iraq, or it said foreclosed. You know, there's a spray paint on a garage door of a house in a development. Foreclosed, three tours in Iraq, but no bailouts for people like me. And it was obviously a veteran who'd lost his house, you know, in the in the GFC. And, you know, but if you were, you know, Lloyd Blankfein or you ran Jamie Dimon or you ran a New York bank, you were back in business and making millions and millions, ultimately billions instantly because the government gave you money. And so, you know, it's just a, a blatantly corrupt system that rewarded, you know, those who had access to the printer and access to the political power and let the rest of us all hang out and, and hit the wall. You know, these guys, this poor guy had his house foreclosed on because he obviously couldn't make the payments or whatever happened. So yeah, it's 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 tragic. It's really, it's wrong, it's tragic, it's sad. And it's what will get fixed by the movement that's taking place right now in the whole sound money area, this gold and Bitcoin movement. I mean, we are going to fix the money um, because it, it has to be fixed. And, and more importantly, it's not just that we're going to fix it, it's that the existing system is going to fail. And then what will happen is everyone will realize that it needs to be fixed and they will come into the sound money arena that we operate in. I find sometimes the idea of, of the money failing is a triggering concept that a lot of people don't even want to comprehend. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and it's and I get accused of being a doomer and I hate this I hate that term because, you know, I'm an analyst. I, I just try and figure shit out. And you know, look, if you were standing, you know, if you had all the you know, the meteorological tools and you were standing on the coast of a of an island and you could look out with radar and all the other stuff and you could see a hurricane coming and you said, you know, there's a hurricane coming and the wind's gonna be 150 miles an hour and the waves are going to be huge and this, that, and the other. And I mean, some people might look at you if they didn't know what you had in terms of the tools and say, hey, you're a doomer. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, you know, if you look at the tools, you do the analysis, the goddamn hurricane is coming. <laughs> and that's that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I'm not a doomer. I'm telling folks that look based on, you know, this is this is not, that's the other thing, Scott, this is not some unknown pattern. I mean, 
the, what we are seeing happen right now with the U.S. currency, the, the you know the world's reserve currency and the U.S. dollar, we've seen this happen at a microcosm level in other countries. I mean, there are other countries that spend too much money, print money to cover up the deficit, monetize the debt, and then the currency ultimately trends toward worthlessness. I mean, this this has happened a hundred times in the last hundred and fifty years. I mean, you know, Venezuela. I mean, it's happening in Turkey right now. It's happening. It just happened. In, it's happening in Argentina right now. It happened in Zimbabwe. You know, a while. Ago. It happened in Weimar in Germany in 1923. I mean, this has happened in many places. And so, you know, the pattern recognition is not that difficult when you see a situation where the debt has grown too large, the budget does not balance itself, the issuing authority of the currency realizes that to keep things going, they must print more of the currency. Then, what, you know, as you, you know and I know, kicks in is something called Gresham's Law. And Gresham's law suggests that when people, when, when a quorum of the population comes to realize that they can never stop printing money, they just can't, and that, that everything we buy is going to be more and more expensive forever, as long as they are printing money, then we will start to vote with our feet and say, you know what, I'm going to only use that money I need to buy, you know, milk and gasoline, but all my savings, I'm not keeping them in bonds, I'm not keeping them in dollars, I'm not keeping them. Well, to some degree in stocks, I'm not, I'm not holding them in things that the government can print. Give me something else. Give me a form of money that can't be printed. And of course, the three that logically spring to mind are gold, silver, and Bitcoin. That's maybe a good, a good time to transition over and, and talk a little bit about gold and silver as they relate to Bitcoin. You're somebody who uh, does a, you know, there aren't a lot of people that, that really are able to walk that line of advocating for all kinds of sound money. Gold and so sometimes there's some partisan camps. You know, the Bitcoiners are like, oh, these gold people, they're all just, you know, troglodytes or you know, Neanderthals. And, you know, and, and the, the, you know, and the gold people are like, oh, these Bitcoin people are just a bunch of dreamers and, you know, crypto wizards and full of shit. And, and look, there's, you know, at the extremes, there's some, there's some sense on both sides of that. I mean, one of the biggest things I encountered in talking to gold people about Bitcoin or, you know, yeah, about Bitcoin is just they look at an FTX as an example. They look at a Sam Bankman free. They say, hey, crypto, yeah, I get it. It's a bunch of fraud. And they're right. I mean, crypto, not Bitcoin, crypto, big difference, has a lot of fraud in it. And Sam Bankman fried was exhibit A. And so, you know, your average gold person, they see that kind of behavior and they go, I, I know what this is. I'm not touching that shit. Okay. And then, you know, in turn, your average Bitcoiner, you know, may look at a gold guy and gold guy isn't even willing to entertain that they, you know, there's something different and say, hey, you're being a troglodyte, you know, you're, you're being old fashioned, you're, you don't have an open mind. And, and that's a fair criticism too. And, you know, what, what I have observed is that, you know, I think, and I've tried, I, I view my role in this. I like them both, obviously. They're different. I, I think ultimately Bitcoin is better and ultimately Bitcoin will replace gold, but not, not overnight and, and not even in a couple of years. I mean, it's going to take perhaps decades, but they, they, they're parallel. And I view gold as analog sound money and Bitcoin as digital sound money. And we live in a digital world. And for a lot of different reasons, I think Bitcoin is superior to gold. And I think it will outperform gold um, in part because um, it's, it's, it's facing an adoption curve. I mean, gold's fully adopted, right? It's been around 5,000 years. It's not like there's anyone who hasn't heard of gold. Uh, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who haven't heard of Bitcoin. They're going to hear about it. They're going to say that, want some of that. And there are only 21 million of them. And they're going to, as they go to get it, they're going to have to pay more for it. But I think that 
when I try and talk to people in the gold world about Bitcoin, and then, you know, I, I encounter a couple of things. One of the things they often say is, well, it's not tangible. You can't touch it. Well, yeah, okay. But but what is money really? It's just a ledger. I mean, you know, the, the bank, the money in your bank account, you can't touch that. You don't touch your money in your credit card. You, I mean, some people carry cash, but most people are dealing with just ledgers. You're just keeping score. You know, and even back in the caveman days, you know, guys were marking things on walls. You know, I killed three bison, you killed one, you owe me two. You know, that there was no money there. There wasn't even gold at that point. They really hadn't found it or mined it. So, you know, money is a social obligation amongst people. If you have it, it gives you the right to to buy exchange it for something. So I've always viewed money as a ledger, not necessarily a physical thing. Now it turned out gold was an element that became a very good physical representation of the ledger because you could see it, know it, it was indestructible, you know, etc. So that that's why you know, and it was rare, and there was it, the supply wasn't growing very quickly. The stock to flow was low, so that's why you know gold was at a um, you know became adopted as universally been adopted by mankind as money. Um, but what I say to gold people that I think they often miss is that what they're looking at with respect to Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is a technical innovation, actually an invention or a discovery, maybe is a different way of saying it. And and the, what is it? The discovery is the notion of quote unquote provable digital scarcity. So if you think of things that are digital, like, you know, files on your computer or sound bites or, you know, um, I don't know, sound songs or whatever, you know, everything digital, photograph, everything digital is copyable. You make a million copies of some digital, you just push, you know, copy. But what if you had something that was digital that couldn't be copied, that you knew how many there were, you knew where they were, you knew that you couldn't, you know, there was no way to falsify one and you could send it and transfer it to anybody anywhere, you know, in a sense, what if you had a quote unquote digital form of, of a gold like thing where the stock to flow was very low? In fact, ultimately, the stock to flow would become, you know, infinite because there, there'll be no flow at some point when we get to the last coin being mined. And you knew it was provable, you knew it was immutable, and you could see it. You know, everyone, anyone could audit it and see it at, at any point in time. Well, that's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin, you know, they used a, a bunch of different technologies, cryptography, you know, computing power, you know, hashing, use of a nonce, a, a lot of other things, including a difficulty adjustment, et cetera, to, to basically create a provable, digitally scarce thing, which is one Bitcoin. And there are 21 million of them in the system. There will never be any, well, they're not yet. There will be a growing towards that number. And and there'll never be any more of that. And so suddenly, you know, if if everyone kind of decides that, you know what, let's let's act as if these are money. Let's treat these things as money because we know, you know, the most important, as, as Safe pointed out in his book, The Bitcoin Standard, the most important thing about money is that it be scarce. You know, that that you can't, I mean, seashells don't make good money. Sand doesn't make good money. You know, um, anything that there's a lot of doesn't make good money. For something to be money, it has to be hard to produce and scarce which is why gold's such good natural money. And in theory, fiat currency could be good natural money if governments were responsible and they actually didn't overprint it and they made it scarce. But the history is that, that that's not how it works. They, they, they can never resist the temptation to overprint and to create too much money. So, so, but I guess my point is that digital scarcity, it's a big deal. It's like, you know, there was a time when mankind had never flown. I suppose some people had jumped off cliffs, but it didn't really work out well for them. And then suddenly, you know, the Wright brothers had a controllable machine that put a person through the air and things were different. You know, there was a time when people had to, you know, write down on paper, you know, the Bible and copy it by hand. And then Gutenberg invented a press and suddenly it could crank out multiple copies quickly. You know, I mean, there, there, I mean, there were just and, and on and on and on. I mean, there was a time when the telegraph didn't exist. There was a time, you know, when radio didn't exist, when TV didn't exist, there was a time when computers and microprocessors. I mean, all of these things were technical innovations. 
that in some way added value to the human experience. And so what I would suggest is that Bitcoin is a digital technical innovation that solves a very pressing problem, which is you know, that the monetary authorities can't stop printing money. Now, gold kind of solved that problem, but there are issues with gold um, that, you know, make it a little bit, uh, that make Bitcoin a little bit better. I would, in comparing and contrasting the two, though, because I sit at the intersection of both of them, I will say a couple of things. One, one of the benefits that gold has over Bitcoin is that it's final. In other words, once it's been made and you have a gold coin, there's no maintenance. There's nothing you have to do to it. It just sits there. It doesn't absorb energy. It doesn't absorb electricity. It just is. Okay. So that's, and that makes it different than Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is a, is a digitally scarce item, but without the electricity and the network running, it doesn't exist. So there actually is an energy cost associated with keeping Bitcoin alive. And there always will be. Now it's, it's small. But but that is a difference between the two the two different you know assets. You mentioned about uh, stock to flow, which is the ratio relationship between the, the total amount of a commodity and the amount that gets produced in a given year. Correct. With gold, when the price of gold goes up, it, there's a more of an incentive for gold miners to mine more gold. No doubt. But let's and 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 one of the arguments Bitcoiners make against gold is they say, well, you know, the price of gold is going to go up, and we're going to produce a gazillion ounces of gold and gold's value is going to get diluted. And let me just suggest that that's not entirely how it works. I mean, but but there is an important point in there. Yes, higher gold prices will mean more gold mines. More gold mines will mean more gold production. Right now, there's about 200,000 tons of gold in the world that have been mined since the beginning of time, some of which are in, sitting at the bottom of the ocean, a lot of which are around you know women's necks in India and around the world. But that 200,000 tons is matched by about 3,000 tons a year that we mine. So, you know, we're adding, say, call it one and a half percent to the existing flow. And by the way, that's about the rate right now that the block reward on Bitcoin is. It's adding about one and a half percent with a halving in April that'll drop in half. But gold, gold mining is hard. A lot of the easy deposits, all the easy deposits have been mined. We've been doing it for a couple hundred years. It's getting harder and harder to find it, but you can always find it. It's just a matter of the price, right? There's gold, there's gold in the ocean. I mean, and, you know, and so um, if the price of gold were to go to $10,000 tomorrow, would we mine more gold? Yeah, we would. But, you know, from the time of discovery to the time when a gold mine starts is typically 10 years. And, you know, even if we were to take the gold mining, all the gold mining in the world today, and of course, a lot of, I mean, there's, you know, billions of dollars of capital invested to mine the 3,000 tons that we mine and double it, you know, we'd still all, which, which is frankly impossible. But, but if we were to do that, it'd probably take 20 years, 10, 20 years to do that. We'd be, instead of stock to flow being one and a half percent, it'd be 3%. So, so the notion that suddenly the market's going to be swamped with a ton of new gold as a result of a higher gold price, not going to happen. It's just geologically impossible to happen. But but your point is well taken. Higher prices mean that we will add the gold supply. And, you know, to be fair, in 40 years, there'll be twice as much gold on the earth as there is today that's been mined. Because if we add one and a half percent and compound it for 40 years, we'll, we'll double. And, and by the way, that's another thing I should point out about Bitcoin that I, I find so fascinating about it. If you look at commodities, it's, it's probably why it trades the way it does. And why I don't think, you know, we're all living in this big experiment. We've never really seen anything like this. We've never seen anything. We've never seen an asset with a fixed supply, a commodity asset with a fixed supply that does not respond to price. I mean, if you push the price of oil up, we'll find more oil. Corn, more corn. Wheat, more wheat. Gold, more gold. Anything. Oil, more, you know, oil is $500 a barrel. We'll be drilling everywhere. We'll find more oil. You can take the price of Bitcoin to a million dollars a coin. 
and the issuance is set, not changing. In other words, the supply is an algorithmic you know, formula that's set. And so we've never really seen anything like that before. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's very unique. Yeah. I mean, it makes me wonder about what that will look like in 2030 or 2040 when the market really more broadly understands what these regular, uh, regular recurring supply shocks like what kind of gravity will that have on any other kind of investing that might be going on when you know? Yeah. And what it suggests to me is, I mean, I really do think Saylor's correct when he says, you know, it's going up forever, Laura. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not at all ashamed. And I know people, I have friends who think I'm crazy, but to say that, you know, I, I see it being out of thousand, you know, very soon. And then I see it being a million in a few more years. And then eventually I see it being 2 million. And then eventually someday maybe it's $10 million a coin. I mean, I, you know, these things are very rare. There are 8 billion people on the planet, the 21 million Bitcoin, you know, and there are, you know, there are, I mean, hell, there are 50 million millionaires. I mean, every millionaire in the world couldn't even own one Bitcoin. There aren't enough to go around. So, you know, it, it, it strikes me that as we get to the stage where more and more people understand the monetary properties of this invention and the importance of those monetary properties, and, and it becomes more, we all collectively accept that, look, this really is a superior form of money. Price is going to be just, you know, it's not even going to be in the same zip code that we're in right now, Scott. I mean, it's going to be just a lot higher. Yeah, especially, you know, in the context of what you were mentioning earlier in the conversation about the inescapable predicament that governments are in with respect to having to print more. You know, it gets kind of messy and tricky. I mean, you know, somebody said, well, where do you think Bitcoin is? I mean, hell, Bitcoin could be 10000 or Bitcoin could be $10 million a coin, but gasoline might also be $1,000 a gallon. I mean, at some point in time, you know, the monetary system itself, I mean, we're, we're measuring Bitcoin in dollars because right now the base currency that we, you know, the price that we all look at, you want to know the price of anything in the world, you can do it in dollar prices. We're not measuring in Bitcoin terms because, you know, not enough Bitcoin around, nobody's using it, but not enough people are using it, but we're measuring in dollar terms. But if the dollar hyperinflates, so the dollar becomes nearly worthless. I mean, it, you know, it'll be things will change to the point where, oh, yeah, that house is worth one Bitcoin, you know, or, or you know, I mean, frankly, I think that, that'll happen pretty soon. I mean, <laughs> and that house is worth a tenth of a Bitcoin or whatever it might be. But this will be, this will become a new measuring stick. And that's really what money is designed to be. Money is designed to be a measuring stick. You know, it, a unit of money is meant to measure something. It's meant to measure economic energy. And that's part of the reason why when you mess with interest rates and you mess with the underlying money, it'd be like telling a guy building a house, you know, yeah, build this house and build it to these dimensions. Oh, by the way, I'm going to keep screwing around with a yardstick. You know, sometimes it's going to be shorter. Sometimes it's going to be longer. Actually, over time, it's going to continually get longer. You know, well, okay. I mean, how are you going to build the house to spec? I mean, that's... You need, you need a money which you can rely on. You can rely on the supply of it so that the price of everything that you set off of it is accurate. So, the, you know, the underlying thing itself is not changing all the time. There's a good argument that that hyperinflation of everything else against Bitcoin has been happening already for a long time. If you, you know, back to your, your thing about it really has. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, hey, some guy spent 10,000 Bitcoin for a pizza, you know, in, in the first what we think is the first commercial transaction. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that pizza is worth billions of dollars today, right? You know, and I mean, I've, I've heard Jeff Booth talk about the value of his lake house in Bitcoin terms. I mean, it's, yeah, every, in Bitcoin terms, everything, in the, you know, either Bitcoin's going up, you know, in dollar values or set a different way. In terms of Bitcoin, everything in the world is getting cheaper because, you know, there's, there's only a fixed amount of Bitcoin. And this is an interesting point, I think, to come back to Bitcoin and gold, because, the gold price has been touching all-time highs 
you know, like flirting with all time highs in U.S. dollars. But the gold, the gold price in Bitcoin has really done what the price of everything else in Bitcoin has done as well. Yeah, I know. Well, Bitcoin is crushing gold and it's, it's for a very obvious reason. And that is that it's still heavy early in the adoption curve. I mean, there's some Bitcoiners who think, oh, the, gold, the price of gold is going to fall. Well, I, I can assure you that they're wrong. The price of gold is not going to fall. The price of gold, I mean, monetary debasement, we know that's a certainty, or I believe it's a certainty, and I think I could prove it to anybody given enough time. So given that, in dollar terms, the price of gold is going higher and the price of Bitcoin is going higher. As Paul Tudor Jones says, Bitcoin is the fastest horse in the monetary race. And so they both are going to go up because the dollar, it's really, it's, it's really the dollar going down. The fact that there are more and more dollars chasing, you know, a fixed amount of gold or a relatively fixed amount of gold, a fixed amount of Bitcoin. But the Bitcoin is going up much quicker than the gold and gold is, is, is suffering vis-a-vis Bitcoin in terms of performance for two reasons. Um, well, right now the stock to flow is about equal, but the, the main reason really is just that is the adoption curve. I mean, you know, Bitcoin today is kind of like the internet in 2000. I mean, we're, you know, it's timing is slightly different, but you know, we're 15 years into it, and the first three, four, five years almost didn't count because it was really kind of a toy. Um, but let's call the modern era when Coinbase started selling it in 2013. So, you know, so kind of we're 10 years into the modern era of Bitcoin, you know, and we're kind of maybe not even at the 10% adoption rate. We're somewhere below that. But if you go back and you look at, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's, you know, tipping point argument, you know, when things get to kind of the 10% adoption rate, and then, then quite often you get on a very steep slope, and he's Got some great charts that show how, you know, cell phones or the internet or automobiles or washing machine, whatever it might be, when mankind creates a new invention, there's a period of time where it kind of gets seeded and everyone starts here. And then at some point, everyone goes, oh, wow, that's really good. I need some, I need that. You know, I, I need an automobile. These horses are not cutting it anymore. You know, I need a washing machine. I don't, I'm not going to do this by hand. I need a, I need a cell phone. You know, I mean, in the early days, you know, you had the Wall Street one, the huge phone. I, I had a boss who had one of those. I mean, it was a dollar a minute. You know, well, now you can get unlimited plans for, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks a month. I mean, it's, it, you know, so it, there's a tipping point in the adoption of these things. And we're, we're, in my view, we're at or very close to that point with Bitcoin where it's going to become very, very obvious to people, you know, in the next five years. And, and Bitcoin's going to really appreciate in price because, you know, we're going to get a large number of new buyers coming in. And right now you're in it. I'm in it. There's a hardcore group of us. We all know it, understand it, believe in it. But and, and there are others who want to get in, you know, like the uh, this ETF that I'm sure your listeners are aware of, you know, BlackRock and Fidelity and a number of other big fund companies have applied to have Bitcoin ETFs. I mean, if you're trying to buy Bitcoin today, you have to be somewhat sophisticated, know how to do it. Um, and if you're a registered investment advisor and in the United States, the registered investment advisors control maybe 20 trillion dollars of people's retirement accounts. And if you go to one of those guys, if you have your money there and you go to one of those guys, and say, buy me some Bitcoin, they say, we can't. You know, it's outside of our, it's, it's, it doesn't fit. There's no, there's no ticker symbol. It's not publicly traded, you know, and we're not going to go buy a treasure and put it on cold stores for you. So, but people say, well, hey, it's been the best performing financial asset the last 10 years. I want some of that. And they say, yeah, we know. That's why our company, Fidelity or BlackRock, that's why we applied for the CTF. Well, that's going to get approved sometime in the next six months. And when it does, suddenly that $20 trillion, some of it's going to go, give me some of the Bitcoin. And as you know, the total market cap today of the Bitcoin, you know, public Bitcoin is, is $700 billion. So if some piece of that 20 trillion says, I, and, and, and by the way, not all of that 700 billion is for sale, right? I mean, some of it's in very deep storage, right? Some of it's been lost, right? 
Yeah, I think it's a mistake when people start thinking about the market cap. You know, if Bitcoin's 700 billion, if, if another 700 billion come in, that's going to do a lot more than double the price because. Exactly. Because there's only of the 700 billion that is there, first of all, let's assume 10 or 20% has been lost. And then let's assume 40 or 50%. I mean, well, we know for a fact that like 60 or 70% hasn't moved in a couple of years. So those are, those are hardcore holders. We're not going to sell it when it goes from 35 to 50. Uh, no, no, they're playing for much bigger numbers. And so it's going to take a lot higher prices to shake some loose. So there's probably at any given point in time, you know, maybe only call it a hundred, hundred billion dollars of quote free trading Bitcoin that's for sale at slightly higher prices. And if, you know, some piece of, um, you know, the 20 trillion, let's say, for example, the 20 trillion of, of RIA money, let's say they just make a, um, oh, I don't know, let's say they make a 5% allocation to it should be pretty high. I mean, I don't think they'll start there, but they might get there over time. Well, that would imply there'd be $1 trillion that would a Bitcoin that would need to be bought. But okay, but there's 700 billion of total, but only maybe 100 billion of tradable. So 1 trillion wants to buy the 100 billion of tradable. How much does that have to go up in value to fit the two together? You know, that's 10x from here, right? You know, and that's just, that's just USRIAs. I mean, Wait until you get, you know, the pension funds and the bond funds and international stuff. I mean, you know, to, to, to put some bigger numbers around this, Scott, there's about $400 trillion of financial assets in the world. $400 trillion. Bonds, stocks, cash. That's before real estate. There's another couple hundred trillion of real estate. $400 trillion. There's $700 billion, So less than one. There's less than $1 trillion worth of Bitcoin. $700 billion worth of Bitcoin, right? And there's about 12 trillion dollars of gold but but not all of that's for sale either because a lot of it's in museums and on females necks so maybe call it tradable gold is four trillion dollars so so maybe if you round the bitcoin up to a trillion take four trillion of tradable there's five trillion dollars of sound money assets in the world today gold and bitcoin five trillion there's four hundred trillion dollars of financial assets in the world today so you know we're talking about just over one percent of the world's financial assets are sound money assets. So when that 400 trillion, this goes back to my point on Gresham's law, when that 400 trillion keeps reading the newspapers and keeps seeing the governments act responsibly and keeps seeing the high inflation, why he keeps understanding the problems that we're facing with monetary debasement and, and wakes up and says, you know, I should take some of that money I have in bonds and stocks and buy some of this sound money shit, right? I mean, it doesn't have to be the whole 400 trillion. Let's just say, let's say 10% of it comes in. That's $40 trillion. That's nuts. 40 trillion chasing five. I mean, it's, and I'm, you know, and, and, and so it's not 10%, five, you know, call it 1% is, is, is 4 trillion chasing five. I mean, the, the point, the point is that if I'm correct about the monetary debasement, which I think I am, and if the awareness of that grows and spreads, there's a lot of money that's in these other things that will come trying to buy our things, which would then suggest that the price of our things is going to go up a lot. That's, that's, the, that's the argument. You made a great point about innovation, and I think it's, it's a, a really helpful way to think about it, that sometimes when an innovation is in itself sort of a quantum leap forward, it, it's normal that the, it could be so different from what preceded it that it, it's hard for a lot of people to understand exactly what it does or, or why it's valuable. And I kind of think that's part of the 
source of the confusion with Bitcoin. For sure. I mean, I, I was an early investor in the internet and I recall people saying, well, why do you really need that? What is that? It's bullshit. It's all, you know, and, and there was a lot, you were, well, you were, but you know, the, the whole dot-com bubble in 2000, I mean, you should have seen the craziness. I mean, we didn't have a Sam Bankman free, but we had a lot of people like that. We had a lot of crazy shit, crazy claims, eyeballs, value. It's going to take over the world. You can't have too much bandwidth. I mean, you, you know, it was all the same nutty shit. And yet those of us who were in it could see yeah, okay, there's a lot of noise and hype and bullshit here. But underneath it all, this internet thing actually does a very valuable thing. It allows you to, you know, send email and get information, you know, worldwide. I mean, it's why you and I are able to sit here. You're in Australia and I'm in Boston and we can have a conversation. I mean, it's it's amazing, right? And and I couldn't foresee any of this when I was investing in the internet in 1993. But I knew that it did things that were working. And, and there was every year more dogs were eating the food, which is a phrase I like to use when you're looking at, you know, venture capital opportunities. I mean, it's just is it growing? I mean, people say to me, what are your concerns about Bitcoin? That's very smart to ask that. Um, there are two concerns I have. One would be if it were a technical problem. And when I started out in it, that was my great concern that, you know, you can't have money based on a computer because computers crash, right? I mean, I've been around in computers since the 70s or early 80s and, you know, the IBM blue screen. I mean, you know, computers crash, you reboot them, you, them up, you start all over again, you hope you didn't lose your files, right? How could you have money on something that works like that? It's just not going to work. Right. So, so that was my initial skepticism. And, you know, it took me a long time to get through that. And there's a, that's a whole story unto itself. I'm not going to go into it here, but, but I got comfortable with that. And now we've got, you know, 800,000 blocks in 15 years. I'm pretty sure it's not going to crash. I mean, it's not a zero probability, but I think it's a very low probability it's going to crash. I think the other thing that would concern me or that, that I've always watched with, with Bitcoin is, is, you know, our dogs eating the food is user adoption increasing. Okay. In other words, you know, suddenly people just said, ah, you know what? I think it's boring. I don't need it. I'm not going to, you know, who gives a shit? It's a flash in the pan. Well, then I'd say, well, okay, you know, if, if people aren't adopting it, if people don't see benefits to using it, if there aren't use cases where people are using it, more people using it every year, then I would say, well, okay, you know, maybe we got a problem here. Maybe this, maybe this isn't as great as I thought it is. But as you know, as I know, if you look at all the statistics surrounding the network, it's growing and usage is growing and the use cases are growing and the things you can do with are growing. And you've got all these fabulous stories of how people in third world countries that used to get robbed by the money changers can now send Bitcoin back and forth and, you know, capture all their value without getting screwed. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, and, and that's just one use case. I mean, there are hundreds of them and, and they're growing all the time. So, so, you know, as long as the technology holds together, it has so far 15 years. And as long as the use cases are growing, this just doesn't strike me as that hard to, to get behind. Do you know what I mean? How's it going to evolve exactly? I don't know. I mean, I couldn't, like I said, when I was back in the internet in the early days, I had no idea. Did I think I'd be talking to people around the world on a video feed? You know, did, I mean, we, you know, I started off putting a phone in a modem and listening to beep, beep, beep. You know, I mean, I don't know if you were around at that in those days, but in the early days of the internet, you know, I had a 2400 baud modem. It drove me nuts. You know, I mean, you know, broadband got developed and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, and, and this will too. I mean, it, there are parts about Bitcoin that are kind of clunky and kind of annoying. I mean, Coinbase reminds me of AOL. It's a piece of shit. You know, I mean, they're they're a terrible broker. Their service is awful. The whole whole company sucks, just the way AOL sucked. But AOL brought a lot of people into the internet space, and then better companies emerged. And and Coinbase has done the same thing with Bitcoin. So you know, it's um to me, it's inevitable. And you know, I I would just what I say to people who I'm talking to, I'm an investment advisor, so I'm I'm you know legally trained trained and all sorts to help people. And I, I just say you, you just don't want to have zero of this. You know, I mean, you don't have to take your whole net worth and put it in it. You know, you're, as a risk manager, you're supposed to take, uh, you know, risk adjusted bets. And so, you know, you don't want to miss it because you've heard about it. If you've heard about it and you're intrigued by it and you study it and you realize that it could go up between 10, 100 or a thousand times its present value, then having zero would be really disappointing in 10 or 15 years if that happened. 
and you were told about it and you never listened. Whereas if you went out and you put just a little bit in it and that happened, you'd be like, oh, I'm glad I did that. And then, of course, once you start putting a little bit, you probably learn more and you think, you know what, I want to have more in it. And then, of course, you get crazy like you and me. And, you know, I mean, right now, just so people know, I'm, I have about half of my, the risky capital, not risky capital, the capital that I'm trying to grow in value. I mean, you know, apart from my, my deep savings and my real estate house that I own, you know, I have it about half in gold and gold miners and silver miners, and about half in Bitcoin. Because I think those two things are the, I think I've got a nice double edged approach to protecting myself from monetary debasement. And people say, well, why do you, you know, people shit on me. They say, well, you have a gold, it's a boomer, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, but hang on a second. Gold doesn't go down 80% on a regular basis. I mean, you know, the thing that everyone is trying to orange pill somebody on Bitcoin has to do, if you're being honest with the people you're trying to orange pill, is you've got to prepare them for the volatility. Because those of us who've been here since 2013, we know that, you know, yeah, it can be very exciting when it goes up 5x, but it can also correct and come back down. And so, you know, dollar cost averaging and having a long-term perspective is an important part of the whole the whole process, right? You mentioned, uh, you know, I want to come back to this idea. We've never seen an experiment like this before. One of the use cases I think doesn't get enough attention is just hodling it. And I think outsiders may not understand that there are a lot of people within Bitcoin who actually have no intention of ever turning their Bitcoin back into dollars at any price. And one of them is Michael Saylor, who holds a humongous amount of Bitcoin. And Saylor has said, we're not selling at any price. So what do you think that means as far as... uh, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean... You know, I mean, they could give it to their heirs or, you know, I mean, it, it's and, you know, it, look, it, it's it is what it is. I mean, it, you know, it's it's a it's a form of savings. I mean, it, it, it's like owning Manhattan real estate or something. I mean, it, it and, you know, I, I doubt that anyone who owns a significant amount of it today will live out their entire life without selling it. I mean, perhaps they will give it to their kids or something. But I know in my particular case, I mean, you know, if it gets if it gets kind of silly, valuable, and I have other needs, you know, just as, you know, whatever my savings would be, you know, I, I, if I sell 1% or 2% or 5% or whatever it is I need to, you know, to fulfill some other need, I'll say, you know what, I'd rather, I'd rather I have this thing over here than have that piece of savings over there. And I'll, and I'll just sell it. And that's how it will get more widely distributed. I like that, that will naturally happen. You know, that, that will naturally occur. I mean, people say, well, there's not enough to go around. Well, there's always enough to go around at a high enough price. Before we wrap up, I'd love to ask you one last question, Larry. We're both huge fans of the fourth turning. And, you know, I I think, you know, as part of this, it's navigating times that are going to look a lot different than what we're used to. Uh, in terms of planning for your your sort of financial security and, and understanding what options are out there. And where, where do you think this is going? You know, the world, money, you know, in, in the context of fourth turning and, and uh, it's an open-ended question. If people want to read the dark interpretation of where it's going, pick up a book called The Mandibles, you know, by Lionel Shriver. And, and, and that's, it describes a currency collapse in, in the West in, uh, in this time frame, And that gives you kind of a dark view of where it could go. Look, I, I'm an optimist, and I'm a, and I'm and I'm positive, and I believe very much in humanity and the human condition. And I, I actually think that you know some of this transition we're going through is almost kind of spiritually driven. I mean, we, we needed to we needed to blow up this corrupt monetary system to get back to a system that'll be better for our kids and grandkids. You know, dialing it down more granularly, I think we could have. I'm not sure we'll have a full-blown hyperinflation in the United States or outright currency failure. I hope we don't. I think we might have very, very high inflation and then some kind of a monetary reset, similar to what uh, President Roosevelt did in the 30s. Um, I think, I hope that we, you know, and I believe that we will ultimately return to a sound money standard because I think that, you know, as, as unfortunately many people don't understand it today, but when we get 
really super high inflation here, people people are going to scream and people are going to say, this is ridiculous. And they're going to know what caused it. And they're going to want to go back to first principles. And first principles are sound money. And so I kind of think that, you know, if you look at how these fourth turnings tend to roll out, Scott, you know, they're kind of 20 to 30 years long. Let's say this one started in 2028. So I kind of believe in the next 10, maybe 15 years at the outset, outside, you know, mankind will have decided and demand that we are on a sound money standard that it might initially be kind of gold driven just because of the history of gold and the central banks have gold and they might try that first. But ultimately, I think it'll be Bitcoin driven, but it could be both in parallel. Whatever it is, it will not be, you know, the the, the fiat nation state, you know, um, military industrial complex bullshit that we all live with right now. And it'll be a much better and more peaceful world um, as a result of that. Because to me, the 20th century was all about peak centralization. I mean, Henry Ford invented the you know assembly line and we figured out we could make a lot of shit really cheap and that improved everybody's leverage standard, but it can create you know a lot of centralization, right? You had to have all the parts made in different places, bring them together. So well, and then and then World War II, we figured out, hey, you know what, we can kill a lot of people really efficiently too. You know, we, we get these big tanks and planes and bombers and you know, and, and you know, damn, if we didn't manage to kill, you know, 20, 30, 40 million people and you know, in a six-year time period. And then of course we invented the ultimate killing machine, you know, the the nuclear bomb. And I think humanity kind of reached its centralized, its, its maximum centralization. And then, you know, the higher spirit, the power is that I, you know, I'm spiritual. The things I like to think happen is that technology saved us and uh, technology and the microchip came along and it led to the internet, it led to all the things we're seeing now. And what we're realizing is that central, they're, they're diseconomies to scale. They're economies to scale because you can make cards faster on an assembly line. They're diseconomies to scale because you get this huge scale and then you get some madman at the top of it like Hitler and he figures out how to kill a bunch of people really quickly because he uses the scale for the killing. And so I think we're going to a world that will be decentralized and the internet is a decentralizing force. And these corrupt, centralized things like the Western media and Western press are getting disintermediated. I mean, the the New York Times used to control the narrative. You know, now Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson outdraw the New York Times. You know, there used to be no way to get your message out. Now you got the Internet. Anyone can get their message out. Doesn't mean you're going to get listened to. But if you got a message, you can get it out there. The the money, you know, uh, Bitcoin is just a, a decentralized form of money. You used to have to have a centralized system based on a central bank, based on the Bank of England, which, you know, and, and you had to have a, a way so that the monetary system wouldn't fail by, you know, providing a backstop. Well, there is no backstop on Bitcoin, but you don't need one um, because it's a standalone system. And so, you know, I see us evolving into a world that's just a much, much better world. But, you know, and, and again, not to be a doomer, but to just recognize that as a meteorologist, I can see a, a hurricane on the horizon. <laughs> I think there will be. There will be some troubling years, and particularly probably more troubling if you hold government bonds than if you hold gold or Bitcoin, um, you know, because of the transition here. I mean, the people who are running the system are going to do everything they can to keep it going in their favor. And yet, you know, the the, the tools we have and the, the advantages of the, what we see are so manifest that they are sure we've got the winning hand. They are sure to fail and we are sure to win. But, you know, it'll be, it'll be you know, it'll, it will be a football match. There'll be some back and forth, right? You know, and, and I mean, look, nobody nobody likes or wants to see human misery. But on the other hand, to, to some degree, you know, without some human misery, you know, human misery is also what oftentimes leads to a demand for change and a demand for reform. Do you know what I mean? You know, I, I think the shortcomings of the current system that we live in are pretty obvious to most intelligent people in the world today. 
you know, the, the, I mean, you just, you, you pull people about how much they trust the government, how much they trust the media, how much they trust the system. I mean, it's, it's pretty abysmal and, uh, and it's kind of like, we can do a lot better and guess what, you know, this parallel thing is getting built and it's going to be a lot better. So that's, that's something to be really happy and optimistic about. But, you know, in the meantime, that doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, put up your storm shutters because the hurricane might be coming. Yeah, it's this funny thing where I, there's a certain level of, like you said, it, it can come off as doomer, but I, I really just think that people need to understand the severity of our current reality and so that they can, you know, properly plan for moving forward. Well, and that's, and, and, and by the way, that's, that's what fourth turnings are all about. They're all about, I mean, it's, you know, the thirties led to world war two, you know, the 1860s led to the civil war, you know, I mean, the American revolution was a fourth turning, right? I mean, you know, a bunch of, I mean, and, and it's interesting too. It always starts with a small group of people. I mean, everyone thinks, you know, a lot of people haven't studied the history very carefully. Everyone thinks, oh, you know, all of America rose up and said, you know what, we got to smite Britain. Those guys, they piss us off. We're going to say, no. I mean, the average American, the guy living out in Pennsylvania, running his farm or my relatives in Michigan, they probably couldn't give a shit about Britain. They were just trying to, you know, run their farm and stay alive. But if you were in Boston and they were putting soldiers in your house and, you know, conscripting you and, you know, making you pay taxes, hell, you got pissed off. And you're like, you know, fuck this. I mean, I don't care if they got the most powerful Navy. I don't care if a big empire. Fuck them. They can't rule us. And, and that's, that's kind of what's going on here. You know, the system, the, the system is broken. Some people are, you know, asleep to it, but there's some of us who are awake about it and are pissed off by it. have been abused by these central banks for the last hundred years and are like, no, this is wrong. We're not, we're not going to take this shit. And you know, your system, your system is broken. We're going to collapse it. And that, that's kind of what, that's kind of how I see it. And that's what's going on. You're uh, you're just a, a really valuable voice for the Bitcoin community. And I, I so appreciate your, uh... you're kind to say that I'm a, I laugh at myself because I'm like, my wife says, I'm, I'm old man yells at central bank. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean and, I, and I am, you know, I'm a boomer. I'm 66 and, you know, I've got all my faults and I'm, I'm far from perfect. But, you know, I'm in this because I, I, you know, I've got kids and hopefully someday I'll have grandkids and, uh, you know, everyone leaves a legacy. And, and I, I, you know, this is this monetary stuff, something I've been studying my whole career. I understand it very well. And so I, I feel like, you know, it's, it's kind of my duty to step forward and just try and help other people to see it and understand it. Because, if, you know, to the, the faster we spread the word, the faster we'll get to the other side and the other side will be better than where we are right now. So that's that's kind of the thought process. Couldn't agree more. For our listeners that want to find uh, find more of you online, uh, where where should they look? Yeah, so I'm a loudmouth on Twitter. You just go to Twitter and type in my name, Lawrence Lepard. Uh, you'll see me there. I, every day I take a shot at another investment banker. Uh, and then I have a, a website and I write a quarterly letter talking about all these things, which is free. You can sign up for it. We won't spam you. And the, the address for that, it's Equity Management Associates is the name of the company. I run the investment company. Uh, the ticker symbol, or I mean, the www is E-M-A, Edward Mark Alpha, then the number, numeric character 2.com. So you can find all that and that's all free. And then shameless plug, I do run two funds and we do take new investors because of all the SEC rules. Uh, you have to have kind of 100,000 plus, but the one fund is the Sound Money Fund, which is gold, silver, and a little bit of Bitcoin. And the other is the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. And if anyone is a qualified accredited investor and has interest in those, you can reach out. Uh, we do have slots left and we don't always have slots in those, but we do right now. And in fact, on the gold side, a lot of people have given up on gold. So we have a bunch of slots open up. So we'll be sure to uh, add those links as well in the uh, in the bios. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, you know, it's that's not really what this is all about. I'm it's um, we, we don't need any new investors, but uh, if people are interested. Thank you again, Lawrence. Love to have you back on some time to uh, chat again. Not happy to do it. I really enjoyed meeting you. And, and uh, as you know, we talked a couple of times. So anytime you want to get me on, I'm just reach out and I'll try and do it. Awesome. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting blockrewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin Forward Benefits and Pension Advisory. For more information, find them at paramountbenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 